Hey everyone! Lily and I are still recovering from the Mind the Product conference in London. We had an amazing time, and we recorded a live podcast on experimentation, which will be in your ears next week. And I actually got up on that stage to do a talk about the thing I've learned from all of these amazing chats on the podcast. About the one thing, no, really the one thing, that differentiates the best product people from the merely good ones. And yes, there are some bad product people out there, but if you're the kind of geek who listens to product podcasts to get better at your job, I can pretty much guarantee you're not one of them. So this week, we're going into the archive to dig out our chat with Susana Lopez. She's now the director of product at Abatable. She also made her Barbican debut the other week with a great talk about dual-track career ladders. You know, the thing that's making sure that there's a path for advancement for people who want to be individual contributors, as well as those who want to be managers. But we had her on the podcast a while back for a great conversation about the state of the product presentation that she used while at OnFido. And that's what we're going to do today. So sit back, relax, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover loads of free resources to help you with your product practice. You can also find more information about Mind the Product's conferences and their great training opportunities happening around the world and online. Create a free account on the website for a fully personalized experience and to get access to the full library of awesome content and the weekly curated newsletter. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Hi, Susanna. Thank you so much for joining us on the Product Experience podcast. It's really lovely to meet you. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. How are you guys? Yeah, really good. Really good. Thank you. And very excited to be talking to you about this um, topic today because I think it's one area where there's lots of different kind of opinions about how to do product strategy. But before we get stuck into that, let's find out a little bit about you and um, if you could give us a really quick intro into who you are, your background in product and what you're doing these days. Yeah, so my name is Susanna. I've been a product manager for about seven years or so. Um, I'm currently a director of product at Onfido, looking after the biometrics line of business. And I got into products straight out of university. I know, shocking. I'm like <laughs> one of the 7 to 11% of us that actually just randomly stumbled into that. Um, and yeah, product is is awesome. And I'm really happy to be here to be able to share with the rest of the community. I owe, I owe a lot to this community, Product Tank, Mind the Product. You know, a lot of learning coming from there. So pretty cool to be here. So, Susanna, one of the things that uh, we were talking about today is this state of product presentation that you use it on Fido. But I'm curious about how it came about in the first place. And as the company started to grow, you started with a top-down strategy, I think. But this is a bottom-up approach. Why is that special? What what problem does that solve for you? Yeah. So um, you can do strategy in, in multiple ways. Um, obviously, I think the ideal way you want to do it is is top down, right? You want to have, um, and Melissa Perry like outlines that beautifully in, in her book. Uh, well, you want to have a situation where like your C-level staff like sets out the vision for the company and then they set out like, okay, what are the business challenges that we have? And then the next layer, the PMs and or the VP products set up, like what are the 
problems from a product point of view we can solve to enable that. And so it all cascades beautifully. Um, but you don't get that kind of structure in every company, particularly early on, where it's a little bit more fluid. Um, so for us, we um, didn't have that kind of setup. So it, it, it felt like we needed to go bottom up first, where the individual PMs were bringing these strategic decisions and opportunities to the C-level team so that they could start to um, have the right conversations and the right trade-offs. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a different method and it kind of empowers the individual PMs to have strategic level conversations and it gives them an awesome seat at the table and like a, a huge growing opportunity as well. So how does it work? What, how, uh, there's, I've got so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> what, like, what is it? How would you describe it? What's its elevator pitch? The so, state of the product kind of approach. So a state of product is, is basically a, a communication tool. Um, it takes shape as a meeting that happens every six months or every one year. And it's basically a, a summary of everything that the product manager has seen in terms of how the product has been performing so far, um, how the market has changed, or like what are the things that have changed since the last time you kind of did your strategy assessment, and what are we going to do about it? And what are we going to do about it with our current team? And if we got additional resources, what else could we do about it? Like, what is the ask that you have for the C-level team of how you can like effectively supercharge your team to achieve those goals at a faster pace. It basically forces us all to kind of take a step back and actually look at everything outside of the organization. <laughs> That's not just like our customer pains, but also go and see like, okay, we're actually part of this market and this is happening. Like, I don't know, Apple just released some new thing or like there's this new technological trend or like there's loads of acquisitions happening, right? Like it's it's a moment where you kind of just zoom out and look outside your firm and you go like, okay, right. So where are we actually traveling to? It's it's basically setting a, a direction of travel for the next year, maybe two years, depending on the maturity of the org. And w- what goes into it? Uh, give us a, the the quick guide to what is in this, this presentation. Okay, yeah. So um, you want to start by just defining what the product is. Um, so originally, we, we used to do this for every single PM. So we ended up with a lot of these. Now we kind of condense it. So uh, each business area or, or each line of business um, does their own in, in, in groups. But you want to define, okay, what is what is this a product that you're building? You know, you could do like the value prop canvas or a way of defining why this product is valuable and what problems does it solve for the market? And then you want to say, okay, given that that's the thing that we're doing right now, how well is it doing? Like, um, do we see a really great revenue uh, growth? Do we see like key metrics and leading and lagging metrics indicating is it is it doing well? Is it doing really poorly? Like, just take a stock of like, what is the health of your product right now? Um, and then you take a step back and you go like, okay, how is the market changing? And that's when you do your analysis on the markets. What what happens before my product? What happens after my product? Am I like a technology play or am I like an end-to-end solution? Um, And then you go, okay, what am I going to do about that? So that's when you do your product strategy section. And there you can do, you can use a bunch of different uh, frameworks and we can go into detail into these ones. And once you're done with that, you go like, okay, now that I've done all of this analysis, what am I going to do about it? And that's where you start extracting themes and say, okay, for this uh, trend that I've seen in the market, this is my response. This is how I'm going to make my company powerful uh, by maximizing or minimizing 
uh, my investment in certain things that are going to help us get to where we need to go. And then you say, okay, for me to execute on it, that's when you start going into your execution area and you say, with the current team, this is what I can do. This is how fast I'm going to progress on it. Um, and then if you don't have a large enough team, you might say, hey, exec team, <laughs> I need I need a, a larger team. Like I need to double the size of this team. And if I do that, here's what I can do for you. Here's how I can accelerate our journey uh, towards this beautiful vision I've just painted of how we should respond to what's happening outside the company. So yeah, so these are these are the overarching sections, right? Uh, product definition, product performance, you do your market analysis, you do your strategy analysis, then you say, so what, what's the roadmap? And then how do we execute? Okay, so that's a lot of um, content in one deck or in, in one kind of presentation. So how much time do you give yourself to then present this back to the business? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that's the one thing that we keep um, going back and forth on. Uh, so this, as you can imagine, can get very quickly to the like 100 slide deck <laughs> mark, mm. which is really quite scary. Um, one of my new joiners just said, you know, this is like writing a book. There's like whole chapters. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's like the condensed knowledge of um, everything in our in our team. And like, what are we going to do about it? Um, so the main piece of feedback that we always get from our chief product officer is like, make it smaller. Like you don't need a lot to make the key points. Remember who you're presenting to. This is a room of C-level staff. They don't need to need to, to know the details. They don't need to know every single experiment that you're going to do to reduce the risk of whether this is the right thing to do. Like you're painting a broad um, brush stroke vision and you're asking very precisely for like, okay, I need this type of investment. And these, these are the skill sets that you need to authorize in the next headcount. Um, so that means that uh, in theory, if you worked really hard to, <laughs> I think there's a quote about if I had more time, I would have written a shorter thing. Yeah. I, I, I'm not right. quoting that right. But essentially, you need to go wide to then go really, really small. Um, so I've seen someone actually manage to do it. Uh, for a relatively small area, but they did manage to do it in half an hour. But for things like our largest business lines, it can take up to two hours. Um, mine is going to hopefully be uh, an hour and a half. Um, but I think if we had another week, we probably could have trimmed it to an hour or maybe even half an hour if we're being really brave. But at that point, you're just like, you know, you're not adding any value. Like you already know what the recommendation is. You're just like polishing. So you're saving some exec like half an hour of their life. Maybe mm -hmm. that's not worth the trade off. <laughs> so you, you said it's a room full of C-level execs. So tell us a little bit more. Who comes to this to this meeting? What And why are you doing it with them? So the first time we did it, we invited everyone with a C-level title and, and some heads of. Um, and by that, I mean, that was like three years ago. The company was significantly smaller. We were about 100 to uh, 200 people. Now we're like almost 500, <laughs> 400 to something. Um, so originally it was everyone from the C-level uh, staff. Um, the reason why you're inviting all these people is that you're going bottoms up. So it's not like they are aligned and they're telling everyone, okay, this is where the company is going. And now this is how we're all going to like strategically um, execute based on what's coming top down. So you're trying to convince them that this vision that you're painting is what they're going to buy into. And the reason why you need, I don't know, the VP sales or the VP marketing there is like, if your recommendation 
is like large enough and bold enough a lot of the times that has impact on like the types of salespeople you need to hire and like the types of market you're going to go into and like even the types of marketing activities you're going to do so you need these people to put their respective hats on and go like okay if that's where the product is going like what do i need to do so we're all aligned and the whole company is going in the same direction so what's the outcome of the session um are decisions made at the end of it or do people go away and have a think about it and then come back how how mm-hmm. does it work after you've presented So typically we uh, allow for like 15 to 30 minutes of discussion. Uh, So sometimes there's some heated debate, particularly if you're going in with quite a pointed uh, suggestion or like something that you haven't really um, presented elsewhere in the past. but then typically it is the role of, of uh, product leadership to kind of consolidate it all into what are going to be our headcount requests for the year. Um, so when that lands in, whoever's going to make that final uh, approval, particularly our finance team, they know the story, they know why it's important. Um, so typically it translates into that. It, it translates into org design. So like, do you need to um, disband a team? Like maybe your recommendation is like, this is a dead end. Like we shouldn't invest here anymore. That was one of my first ones was like, we should kill this product and like start this other thing. Cause there's much more opportunity there. Um, so that's typically the next steps is um, you, you've managed to get buy-in hopefully. And then all of that goes into your head plan, um, headcount planning. And then that gets approved and funded eventually. Sometimes it doesn't like, sometimes you make a really good pace and then people go like, yeah, 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 this is great. We just can't afford to invest in this right now. And then maybe a year later, you need to do it again. And you say, Hey, since last time, and now I have even more evidence that this is now increasingly urgent because look at what happened with this competitor and blah, blah, blah. Uh, or like regulations have changed, like we really need to make a move on this. And suddenly that headcount looks even more justifiable. And now this time it's going to get approved. One of the lessons I learned working in really large companies was never go into these big presentations with C-level people if you didn't already know what the answer was supposed to be. And there were all all the pre-meetings and lobbying people and making sure. So when you're talking about things like this, where you're talking about uh, uh, working to make your presentation that finance is going to make headcount decisions and investment decisions, are you working with them ahead of time or is this the first time they're seeing this? Yeah, so – I think because the company is still small enough, um, we're going into it primarily cold when it comes to people very far away, very far away. I'm I'm doing (laughs) air quotation marks. You can't see me (laughs) talking to myself here. Um, Yeah. So because we are still small enough, um, there's not a lot of pre-meets that are necessary uh, unless obviously it's with your engineering team, with your ML team, if you've got one, with your data team, like with the people that are really focused on the the core delivery, um, you've got loads of discussions and basically it's, it's part of those discussions that go into the deck in the first place. Um, but when you're, when you're presenting something that doesn't have a huge amount of impact beyond just the product work, um, we don't really do all of those pre-meets, but I, I, I can see that in like two years when we're like, whatever, 700 people, we absolutely will need to do that, right? I think the level of prep is going to be proportionate to the 
to the chaos around you. (laughs) (laughs) So so just to square off on this, who's involved in writing it? You talked about the fact that you're doing it with your product team uh, Mm. for, for the state of product that you're doing this week, but do you get the, your head of engineering and your peers involved in writing the deck as well, or are they uh, come in at a later date towards the end of it? Yeah. So they're involved in all the discussions around, okay, like sometimes you need to make a, a, a trade-off around, okay, can we invest in this thing at the same time as this one? Actually, there's no capacity in the team to like paralyze these two. So um, there's a lot of collaboration in, in coming up with an execution strategy, less about the overarching strategy, right? That That tends to be done more by the PMs and Maybe if you've got uh, like a business analyst function or a strategy function, or sometimes the finance team also helps provide like revenue data and things like that. So it's primarily driven by the PMs, but all the other functions kind of come in and help with certain parts. Um, During the presentation itself, we sometimes have uh, engineering present, okay, given all of this right at the end in the execution part, this is what we suggest the new reporting lines should be. Or like, this is how we suggest hey, you just said you need a whole new set of mobile engineers. Like, are they going to report into the line of business or are they going to report into like some mobile specialist? Like, what is the consequences for the rest of the organization? Um, So very collaborative, but primarily driven by the PMs. And do the PMs work together to have alignment across that bottom-up strategy? So everyone's presenting a consistent message or a consistent direction from, you know, from the bottom up? Yeah, so that's the role of the chief product officer in our company. So he will present like a, a, it starts to be a little bit more top down now, um, but he will do like an overarching, I mean, with us, it's on Fido identity verification platform um, or identity platform. And then we will work off that. So we, we should all more or less be on message. Uh, but sometimes one team will be like, I really disagree with the top level strategy and I really think we should do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to use this airwave time to like make that case. And obviously they'll run it past the CPO and say like, I don't agree with what you're, <laughs> what we're doing. Like, this is what I'm going to present. And they'll be like, okay, great. Like make that point. And then let's see how, how people react. Um, but generally, yeah, there's a lot of crosstalk and, and make sure we, we tell a cohesive story, particularly when there's dependencies between like horizontal teams and vertical teams. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, as we scale, that's becoming to more uh, of a challenge. Hey, Lily, you're a senior product leader. <laughs> Why, yes, Randy, how kind of you to notice. <laughs> I may have led just a few product teams in my time. So you know how important it is to hear stories and get insights from other product leaders facing similar challenges. Oh my golly gosh, super important. And to be honest, not so easy to find that these days. So much has changed in the past couple of years. Oh God, I hear you. Well, the reason I bring it up is because Mind the Product have just released a series of brand new case studies from senior product leaders all about leading product teams through change. Tell me more. 
Well, in this brand new and totally free resource, Mind a Product explores the stories of five product leaders who have effectively navigated change in their current and past positions, unveiling crucial lessons and sharing the principles you need to embrace in order to tackle challenges in your role as a product leader. Very interesting. So who are these product leaders? Well, they've got some goodies. There's Dave Washa, who is the former CPTO at Zoopla. Uh, Kate Lido, who's an amazing product leadership executive coach, and Navia Rahani Gupa, CPO at Peak, for starters. And there's even a bonus tip section on how to look after yourself as a product leader and oodles more further reading suggestions. This sounds amazing. How do I get my hands on it? Oh, that's the easy part. Just sign up at mindtheproduct.com, leading through change. So there's a, a lot of different sections in here. As you said, it was definition and performance, market analysis, strategy, roadmap, and even into execution and risks and unknowns. Mm -hmm. And I'm only saying that so fast because I have notes in front of me so I can read it off. But um, that's a lot of different stuff. And yeah. most product people I know are strong in some of these areas, but not necessarily all of them. You've been doing this for a few years now. Have you seen yourself become more well-rounded? Are you seeing some people uh, are strong at one part and not the other? How does, how did you, how does that work? Yeah, that, that's an ex excellent question. I mean, to me, the first time I did this, I was so terrified. I was like, how, like, where am I going to one, find the time <laughs> and two, like, this is a mammoth, mammoth task. And because of that, it's also incredibly empowering, right? Suddenly you're, in charge of a fairly large task that's going to have a huge influence on what the company is going to do. Um, so like personally, the areas where I felt stronger at was like what I consider the easy bits. Like I come from an engineering background. So that means that for me, Hey, let's do some charts and performance analysis and like numbers and metrics. Like that's all, uh, that's all great. And I, massively overspend time on that section because that was the one that felt the most comfortable. And because I come from engineering, I don't have a background in strategy. So anything in the strategy section, which is actually the most important, I was just like, oh, I'm really tentative. I don't really know how to do this. Um, and so in the first time I did it, like my CPO, like was literally hand holding, like trying to pull teeth out of me. So, okay, what are you going to do about it? Like, you've just made a really good point with your amazing graph. Like what, so what like <laughs> tell me what we should do and I'm like oh I don't know it's the, all these options and the risks and let mitigate and I'm like no make a statement like be bold like where where is the line of business going so um developmentally if that's a word um mm -hmm. this has been like one of the biggest things in terms of accelerating my career and like how zoomed out I think about stuff like now it's been three years since the first time I did this, but like my brain kind of accelerates faster to the strategy section now. Like I don't spend so much time on the other sections, particularly because I've been in the same domain and the same company. So you do get some economies of scale. Um, but yeah, it's, it forces you to be more round, particularly if you're doing this early on where there's not a lot of other PMs in your area and you're just like, uh, a one person show but as soon as you have a larger team then you can start specializing and all that kind of stuff but it it, it forces you uh, i'm guessing you're not rewriting it from scratch each time either now no no so that's why um so the first time we did it uh we actually did it uh twice in the same year 
because the first time was really foundational. Uh, and then the second time we were slightly bolder with our recommendations. And now we do it once a year. And primarily it's almost like a recap. It's like, hey, these were the market trends last time. This is the delta since last time, right? Like we're not going, oh, and then the product does this and these are the key metrics and this is the needs of the market. You're, you're mostly doing a delta on the previous year. What kind of feedback do you get from the C-level execs? Like how do they, how do they respond to the sessions? Generally, they're <laughs> they're really happy to be informed and really happy to have visibility on the thought process. And I think it gives them a sense of comfort that we're not just like making stuff up, <laughs> that it's all uh, grounded in, in, in data and like careful analysis. I think the feedback is always it's too much. Like this is this is a lot like I don't know if we need all of this. I think us as a team, we need to go through this whole thing. I mm. think we need to iterate on how we present it. And that's why I was so excited when you asked me, like, how long do you need? Like the first time I saw it done in half an hour, I was like, oh my God, that, that's the future. Like we need to all be presenting <laughs> this in half an hour. If you've got the clarity of spirit that you can make that really crisp argument, you've got all the data, you've done the one hour and a half work, but you've just managed to like concisely presented in a way that's really compelling, really rememberable, and that everybody's going to leave that room going, I'm definitely approving this headcount. That's when you've, I think, hit nirvana of <laughs> state of product and communicating with execs. But it's a it's a journey. We'll, we'll get there maybe next year. And does each group do it at the same time of year or are you, are you staggering them throughout the year? Yeah, so we, we all do it at the same time, um, more or less within the same uh, time. So the way that our CPO likes to schedule it is we do it just before the business strategy um, session. So like the company now has a, a business strategy process, which we, we didn't have so formally uh, when we first started doing this. So this forms as an input in terms of like, okay, the product is going in this direction. What does that mean in terms of execution and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it we do it one, one a week. So um, the CPO will do one uh, for the whole product platform and then we'll do one for each of the lines of businesses and then one for the, for the horizontal teams that are supporting. So... Um, components rather than products people pay for. Mm -hmm. So you have a, you mentioned earlier that you have a kind of product strategy section within this deck. Mm. Um, what does that cover? Yeah, so that's the, the section where you're essentially trying to use whatever frameworks you find useful um, to make sense of everything that you've seen um, before in the deck. So uh, make sense of the market and then make sense of your position in the market. Um, so the, the tools are really varied. And if people on, on, on the podcast, on the call, <laughs> if, people <laughs> listening, if people listening come from a strategy background, maybe you've been a consultant or something like this section is going to be easy peasy and you'll recognize a lot of it. So like SWOT analysis, strengths, opportunities, and threats, that's a really common framework to help you assess like what are the things that you've got that are really strong and what are the things that are weaknesses that you could improve on and like what's happening externally that are opportunities for you to take advantage of or, or things that have changed that are now a threat to your existence. Um, some people like to use like Porter's five forces, which is another one around like the different threats and what's happening around the firm. 
Um, we always include a competitive assessment. Um, there's this uh, PM uh, VP product at Procore, uh, Ezene Udezwe. She um, said something amazing at Mind the Product last year. She said, market research is an act of empathy. You need to understand what options and choices your prospects have to make. So I love that. And that's like a thing that really drives me when I'm doing the competitive assessment. Mm. Um, so like just putting yourself in, in the shoes of a buyer and going like, ooh, how am I going to make this decision? Like what are the buying factors and like how am I going to compare the company that you work for with all the other ones? Mm. And then my new favorite um, strategic analysis tool <laughs> that I think has not really made it into the product um, community as much as it's made it into the strat strategy uh, community is like strategic network analysis, uh, which is basically like looking at how uh, businesses that rely on data build strategic modes of protection. Because it's really easy to just copy each other, like everybody affords developers these days. Um, so how do you make it really hard for other people to enter you into your turf? So this is like um, mm. super pointed to help you do that. That's, I was really hoping you were going to talk about that one, because that was one of the uh, terms that you used in the, the presentation that I hadn't uh, heard so much before. So do you have any advice on how to go about doing that? Is there anything you've learned from uh, from your experience now? Uh, yeah, so this is actually from a book that's called Competing in the Age of AI, if people want to look it up. Um, and there's like one chapter, which is all about uh, strategy for, for AI companies. But you don't need to be an AI company for it to be relevant for you. It's just you need to be like a modern software or software as a service company that uses data to make decisions and, and build products. Um and yeah, so so this is basically you're analyzing what are the things that you want to increase and what are the things that you want to decrease to create these strategic modes. So um, there's five things that they analyze. So one of them you're probably familiar with is network effects. Um, so like how valuable is your product and does it increase with the number of users? So like an example of that would be if I have... Uh, a bed like the value of the bed to me is only dependent on the bed like it doesn't matter how many other people in the world have beds i don't care the bed has a finite amount of value but if i have a fax machine or a phone the value of that is going to increase if there's more people that have phones because now i can call more people right so this is like really critical because if you've got a product with really strong network effects, it becomes really hard for the next person to come in because the product is not going to be valuable or as valuable as yours until there's like loads of people on it. So that's like a typical example of that is like Facebook. If there's no people on Facebook, that's not valuable at all. So they've got really, really strong network effects and that's really hard to copy. You can't just hire developers to like <laughs> put people on your platform. Um, <laughs> So one of the things you want to do is like, okay, does my product have network effects? And if it doesn't, how do I introduce them? And if it does have them, how do I maximize that effect? So it's really hard for other people to compete with me. Um, another one is like learning effects. So uh, does your product uh, generate like hard to obtain data that makes your product really good? So that one, the classic example is Google, right? Like Google 
gets really, really good because it knows what you're searching for. And that data, you can't really acquire or buy on the internet. You just get it through usage. Same thing with Netflix, like really strong learning effects there. So if you were to launch a new Google tomorrow, like where do you start? Like you need the data to make it good so you can't compete. So you create that really big distance uh, with your competition. So those are things you want to maximize. And then on the bits that you want to minimize are like um, multi-homing and disintermediation. So multi-homing is like um, whether someone like is using your product and also an alternative. Uh, so um, an example of that would be like an Uber driver. Like they're trying to maximize um, how much time they spend driving and maximize how much money they receive out of it. And if your product is not very good, then they might also use Lyft at the same time. So they're multi-homing, they've got two homes. But because now this Uber driver is in two homes, the value to the person asking for an Uber driver is actually decreased because suddenly there's less Uber drivers on the road. So you want to reduce multi-homing. You want to make sure that um, that all those Uber drivers stay within Uber. You make it really easy for them to get paid. You give them insurance, like you create all of these incentives so that that, that platform is really, really strong. And it's really hard for a new Uber to start uh, because they need all of those people within there to provide value. And then the other one you want to minimize is disintermediation. So that one is about being bypassed. So this is really um, a problem from uh, two-sided marketplaces sometimes. Um, so. I've got a cat um, <laughs> and I need a cat sitter. So I'm gonna hire a cat sitter through like flatten a cat or, or something like that. And then the next time I need that cat sitter, I'm actually just gonna like WhatsApp her. <laughs> I don't need to book through mm. cat in a flat. So I'm disintermediating cat in a flat. And then suddenly like they're not getting any revenue anymore. So they've just lost that platform effect like um so what can they do like they can offer insurance or something like that that forces me to find the interacting with her um more valuable than interacting without her because suddenly the value of the platform is lost and then the last one is is bridging opportunities like what do you have that's valuable to another network to another company um so like maybe it's your data it's your assets your uber drivers are also helpful to deliver food. Look, you can enter a new market. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating <laughs> um, tool and, and really cool book. I recommend people read at least the, the strategy uh, chapter. Um, the rest is is a little bit, some of it is, is to help companies that are not data-driven become data-driven. So a lot of it might be a little bit um, too known, but this mm. analysis stuff I found really helpful. That's fantastic. I love the example of uh, of the cat sitting one. It's <laughs> actually one of our very first episodes was with a guy named Christopher New who was looking after. Uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of the company now, but it's an Australian company that was specifically looking at dog sitting and things like that. And he told us a very similar story and how they how they overcame that. So if you want to learn how to overcome it, you have to go back into our archives. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did want to ask you one last question, Suzanne. This has been fantastic, but this is a lot. And as you said, you've learned a lot over the years as you've redone it uh, and, and gotten more experience with it. For, so for someone who's going to try and take this into their company and do it for the first time, uh, I'm curious, what kind of mistakes do you see people make when they come into Onfido and try it for the first time? What's the, the thing to watch out for to make sure you're getting some value out of this? 
there there's two questions there one is when people come into onfido what do they struggle with mm. the other one is how the hell do you introduce this elsewhere yeah. <laughs> two very different questions well one of them you have experience with so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh when people join onfido i think they they do um what i did right they, they're gonna more easily spend time on the sections that they found easiest and then they're going to shy away from from doing uh more work on the ones that they 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 find more difficult so if you come from strategy you're probably going to be all over the strategy section and then you might neglect like the data analysis and the market analysis and all that kind of stuff um so that's where i've seen um that's where i've seen patterns in myself and others within the company um, when it comes to bringing this to another organization, I would say don't try to do the whole thing to start with. Like literally like pick one thing. Like can you do a market analysis? Can you do a strategic network analysis? Can you do a SWOT? Like start with that one thing and then present it to your peers and then go like, hey, we're not really talking about strategy. Like should we get together and do like a small thing? Like. <laughs> find your minimum viable state of product before you try to invite all the execs into a room and go like, right, you're not leaving. You've got two hours. Grab a seat and <laughs> some snacks. I've got some strategy to present to you. Yeah, and I think like getting buy-in at a smaller level um, would be my number one piece of advice. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really enjoyable conversation. I learned a lot from this one. Awesome. Well, it was great being here. Um, the slides are available. <laughs> I know this was a lot of content and I think people will need some time to digest. So uh, feel free to reach out via Twitter or something like that. I'm always happy to help. And we'll have a link in the show notes in the article to your Twitter, to the slides, to to everything. And yeah, it's definitely worth catching up on. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Susanna. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>